by the way, if you have kids, uh, particularly aged through, uh, from three through 11, now is a great time uh, to be heading out this door now uh, with Mrs. Harden. So how many other kids there are who fit that category? Brace yourself. Uh, and of course, um, there is the cry room at the back of the church if, if you need to make use of that. Well, we're, we're getting through Acts, aren't we? We're, we're, um, we're now halfway, I suppose. Acts has 28 chapters. So welcome back. Uh, and before we begin, I'm just going to pray. Father God, speak to us in your word. And may it dwell with us. May your spirit be at work, that it might bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. Well, we continue our series in the book of Acts, and we rejoin our first missionaries, Barnabas and Paul, on their journey. Let me give you a quick bird's eye view of where they had begun and where here in chapter 14 they go. So here is a map of their journey. I don't know how well you can see that. Here is a slightly um, zoomed up version. They were sent out from Antioch. They sailed to Cyprus, which is where they encountered the Jewish sorcerer, Bar-Jesus, whom we learned about last week. And from there they sailed to Pisidian Antioch up there, uh, and that's where Paul delivered his first speech, his first sermon in the book of Acts, and from there they travelled to Iconium, which is where we pick up the story this evening, and as we have read, they then flee to Lystra, then Derby. and by the end of chapter 14, they've actually arrived back in Antioch, where they had begun, they've, they've retraced their steps, uh, and they've come back to Antioch. And last week, if you were with us, the challenge was that we actually need to speak the gospel. We need to articulate the gospel. The gospel is lived, but it is first and foremost spoken. And so I left you with uh, four questions that you could ask uh, to help guide you in your witnessing. But this week, we need to be under no illusions as to the trials and the hardships they're going to come our way with being ambassadors for Jesus. Because expectations don't, don't shape experiences as such, but they do colour experiences. We heard a few of Dave's earlier. Miriam and I once stayed in a small hotel in London uh, and uh, we, we, had, we had read the reviews, right? We had did our research and so our expectations weren't that high to begin with. But the reality, I'll tell you what, was far worse. Let me give you the highlights. Uh, this is in the middle of London, in the middle of winter. Our bedroom window wouldn't close, okay? Um, our bathroom door wouldn't open. We had light switches in our rooms that we were fairly certain uh, controlled the lights in other rooms, that turned the lights in other rooms on and off. And perhaps most alarmingly, alarmingly the signs for the fire escape, okay, 
uh, led to a dead end in the basement of a building. Uh, this was, it, it, was, it was atrocious, right? It was atrocious. But when it comes to the Christian life, and especially as we are prepared to put ourselves out there and to testify to him, we want to do so being under no illusions that we are signing up for, well, what we are signing up for. Because unrealistic expectations lead to doubt and to discouragement. And so we're going to pick up on a few of these as we travel with Paul and Barnabas through chapter 14. So if you have got your Bibles open, it'd be, it'd be great to have your Bibles open, whether they be uh, on your lap or on your phone. In Iconium, uh, while Paul may have turned to the Gentiles, do you remember last week at the end of chapter 13? While Paul may have turned to the Gentiles, they head first to the synagogues to teach. Verse 1, there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. And so they're met with immediate success. But they're also met with immediate opposition. Verse 2, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. And so here we are faced with our first corrective to our first illusion. Because sometimes we can think to ourselves that if only everyone had just hears of Jesus' love, that there would be peace. Uh, Not so, actually. The gospel is divisive. Yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Yes, he came to bring us peace with God. But it is Jesus himself who says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you about division. From now on, there'll be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, I didn't think you needed the gospel to cause divisions among in-laws. But this is serious stuff, isn't it? This is, this is heartbreaking stuff. Allegiance to Christ will not result with peace with all men, let alone your family. Now, I know that some of you are living this reality right now. And in a sense, we all are. Because Jesus' claim in John 14, 6, for example, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, that is, that is offensive. It is offensive to the pluralistic society in which we live. But Jesus did not come to tell people that all paths lead to God. He did not come to tell people that what you believe does not matter. His claims are unique and absolute, and therefore they're divisive. And so here we see what was typical in Acts, as it is nowadays, that some believed while others hated. So be under no illusions. The gospel is divisive. But that shouldn't stop us, actually. Instead, it should embolden us, because like there were in Iconium, some will respond in repentance and faith. We're told that the harvest is plentiful, 
but the workers are few, not the other way around. Here in Iconium, a great number believed, while others planned to stone Paul, and so they fled. And as one author writes, Paul and Barnabas were brave but not foolish. They were born again but not born yesterday. And so we follow them to Lystra. And it is here that things get pretty intense. Here we encounter another lame man who this time Paul heals. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lysonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was a chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeds to the city gates because he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Now, there's a little bit of background here that may help us uh, understand this scene. According to local legend, um, those gods, these same gods, Zeus and Hermes, once descended to this region disguised as human beings, and no one recognised them. No one welcomed them into their homes. There was one elderly couple, however, who did welcome them, and so they were richly rewarded. Their little humble cottage was transformed into the temple, and, and uh, they were made priest and, and priestess. And so these guys were determined not to make that same mistake again, and presumably they were after similar rewards also. Now, if you remember back actually in chapter 12, uh, the crowds said of Herod, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Do you remember that in chapter 12? And because Herod didn't object to this, he was struck down and eaten by worms. Do you remember that? Acts chapter 12. Paul and Barnabas' response couldn't be any more different. They're actually grieved. They're grieved. Verse 15, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. Now, interestingly, uh, we don't have many physical descriptions of uh, the people we come across in the Bible. We do have a physical description of Paul. Um, it's outside of the Bible, and it happens a fair time after the Bible. Um, but we do have a physical description of Paul, and it's actually of this time... Uh, that he spent here in Lystra. And so elsewhere, he is described as, picture this, bald, monobrowed, long-nosed, and bow-legged. Right? Paul and Barnabas were normal people. And they were distressed that the crowds were implying otherwise because to confuse the message with the messenger is to rob the message of its power. So here is our second corrective to our second illusion. The messenger is not the message. Now, our tendency to confuse the two may not be as blatant as it is here, but we find it just as easy to exalt the message the messenger, instead of the message. We want to find in others, rather than in God, our sense of significance or security. In the uh, Christian West, 
we have our own Christian pantheon, don't we? Our own Christian idols whom we worship. Perhaps our favourite preacher or our favourite writer. Christians are normal people with better news, with good news. But it's not just Christian celebrities that we're in danger of idolising, is it? Uh, Now, knowing that he is only human, someone like Tim Keller has some really helpful stuff to say at this point. He writes, an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity. Idolatry is not so much wanting bad things, but it is turning good things into ultimate things. Which means that good things, good things like your career and good things like your business and your spouse and your children and your material possessions and your financial security, your ministry even, good things can become idols. And these are just some of the more tangible ones because others lie deep behind these ones. Comfort and approval, control or power. Keller goes on. The Bible does not consider idolatry to be one sin among many and thus now a rare sin only among primitive people. Rather, idolatry is always a reason we ever do anything wrong. So, for example... We lie because we have first, uh, first made the approval of others and our own um, reputation more important, more valuable to our hearts than the grace of God. Can you see that? You see what I've, I've done there? Idolatry is what lurks beneath all sin. And so here are some self-diagnostic questions that'll help us unearth the idols in our own lives. So I want you, as best as you're able, to answer these questions in your own mind, in your own heart, right now. Ask yourself, what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about most? You think of one or two things? Ask yourself, what if I fail that or lost it would cause me to doubt my significance and my security and my faith even? Ask yourself, who or what, because it can be both, Who or what do I rely on for comfort when things get tough? Ask yourself, where does my mind go to when I've got free time? That is, what preoccupies me? Well, this one. Ask yourself, what do I really want and expect out of life? 
I mean, what would make me really happy? Now, digging deep into the thoughts and attitudes of your heart to unearth idols is like pouring alcohol on a wound, right? It hurts, but it's cleansing. So identify them. Identify them. Recognise how poor and weak they are compared to the sufficiency of Jesus and the surpassing, uh, surpassing security and um, significance found in him. Recognise how dangerous they are to you because of how subtle they are and how deep they lie. And recognise how grievous they are to Christ. Paul pleads to these guys, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and, and everything in them. Right? It is... It is he that has given you these good things to begin with. Verses 16 and 17. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Well, this is an extremely brief sermon, if you want to say sermon, because this is as far as Paul and Barnabas got. Once it became clear to the people that their idols were not going to give them what they wanted, which they never do, ultimately, they quickly turn against them. Now, since the beginning of the chapter... Chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas have had their ups and downs, haven't they? They first were accepted in Iconium, then they were rejected in Iconium, then they were accepted in Lystra, this time as gods, and then now they're rejected in Lystra, this time they're actually stoned. Verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. And so here is our third and final corrective to our third illusion. Following Jesus is costly. Now, you may have heard different. There are churches and movements who will teach that following Jesus leads to health and wealth. If that is your expectation of the Christian life, you will be bitterly disappointed. Jesus himself says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. Now, that is so countercultural. That is so counterintuitive because that is the way of the cross. Now, on this occasion, Paul survives. He survives. And as they retrace their steps, if you remember that map, as they retrace their steps all the way back through to Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. They encourage them, saying what in verse 22? 
we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see how that's an encouragement? Now, for most of history, Christians have known this because they've lived it. But as we re-enter an age where there'll be increasing opposition to both the message and the messenger, even in so-called Christian countries, we've got to relearn this truth. Discipleship is costly. It may even cost you your health and your wealth in this age. Paul will later write to Timothy, his protege, his... um, co-worker in the gospel in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 11 and 12. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happen to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I wonder how that sits with you. Talk about realistic expectations. Now, cricket has appropriated a term. I couldn't help myself with a cricket illustration. Apologies. Cricket has appropriated this term, badge of honour. And in cricket, it is used to describe the bruises that batsmen get uh, as they're hit by fast bowlers who will oftentimes try to intimidate, with, intimidate them with their pace, uh, ultimately dismiss them. And these bruises are called uh, badges of honour. When the batsman perseveres through the pain, when he preserves his wicket, and when he bravely faces up to the next ball. Talk to any cricketer. This is invigorating stuff. (laughs) Although it's painful at the time, at the end of the day, it is a source of pride. In Acts, persecution is like this badge of honour. It doesn't mean that they were foolish and and, and they sought persecution out. But it does mean that at the end of the day, their bruises were a source of pride and joy even. And wonderfully, Acts also teaches us, assures us that the risen Lord Jesus still rules and reigns and is still with his people through thick and thin. You may be asking yourself, is it really, is it really worth it though? If, though, if these are to be my expectations, is it really worth it? Well, Paul will again later write in Romans 8. In Romans 8, 18, he writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And then in Romans 8, 38, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus. Counting the cost of discipleship means that we realise that the prize is worth the price. That the kingdom of heaven is this priceless treasure. It's worth selling everything to buy that one field. It also means realising that it's nowhere near as costly as the price that Jesus paid to redeem us. And this sort of discipleship, a discipleship that counts the cost, is a powerful witness to those around us. You know where Timothy was from, right? Timothy, Paul's later co-worker, he was from Lystra. The very city where Paul is stoned and left for dead. Now, Paul actually does meet Timothy on his second missionary journey through Lystra. But who knows, perhaps Timothy as a little boy was watching on from a distance and was captured by Paul's devotion and willingness to count the cost of following Jesus. So as we are challenged to speak the gospel, be under no illusions as to the cost, be under no illusions, though, as to the prize. On the cost of discipleship and the hope of glory, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Amen.